I am excited that I get the privilege to talk to you about a topic that is um, it's important for our generation. It's important for our day and age, both in the church and in the business world, in our political world, and that's on leadership. So I am honored that I get to do that. Uh, when, we, when we think about leadership, we look at leaders, and we look at leaders all across the world. We've got leaders who look different ways, act different ways, conduct themselves different ways, and we're gonna look at four leaders of what the world would consider leaders. So this first one that we're gonna look at is, who's that? John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy led with swagger, as you'd use the word today. He had charm, he had charisma, he had it all. He knew what to say, how to say it, knew how to dress. He had a wife who was beautiful. She knew how to dress. Everybody wanted to be the Kennedys. So the world would view JFK as a great leader. But we know about JFK, his moral life was in shambles. So our next leader that we consider a leader would be, who is that? That'd be MLK. MLK, not only did he start a revolution, but he inspired not just a race, but he inspired an entire nation for change. And change not through violence, change not through bringing harm, but change through peace. JFK, or I'm sorry, MLK, would be considered a great leader. So these are two good leaders that we look at. Now these three guys here are on the complete opposite spectrum. So the guy on the far left is Stalin, the guy in the middle is General Mao, and the guy on the far right is Adolf Hitler. Now these three guys led completely different, didn't they? You would think if you read history books about Hitler, Hitler had charm, Hitler had charisma, but they also led with terror and fear and anger. But if you look at all three guys, they had one thing in common. They wanted to make their country the best it could be at no cost. Whatever cost possible, they would do it. So those three guys there would be considered world leaders, but not the ones that we would wanna look up to. And this last guy, does anybody know who he is? There we go, David Koresh, the Branch Levidians. Um, out in Waco, we all know what happened in the 90s with that, but even with Koresh, he led with charisma. He had charm. He had the words to say. He got his followers to do whatever he wanted them to do, but yet was he leading the way he was supposed to lead so we can look at all these world leaders and they all have good qualities per se, but were they biblical qualities? So tonight, we're gonna look in 1 Peter chapter five and we're gonna look at some different attributes for a godly leader. We're gonna start in reading 1 Peter chapter five, verse one. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So this first area that we're gonna talk about is the standard of leadership. And a leader is one who leads. It's easy. A leader is one who leads. A true leader isn't promoted into a position a true leader isn't voted in. A true leader is somebody who steps up to the plate. We've all heard the saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. So when the, when the tough times happen, a natural born leader steps up. That's just what a leader is. We all know the people who are put into position or who are given a job title, and when it gets difficult, what do they do? 
they back up. And somebody else has to step in. So we all know those kind of leaders, but a true leader steps up when the tough gets tough. Um, if you know me at all, more importantly, if you know my wife, uh, my wife runs our household. I am perfectly okay with that. My wife runs our household, but she submits to me through the biblical example in scripture, I'm the leader of our household. There's a big difference between running your household and leading your household. So before we can be leaders of our business or leaders of the people who are under us wherever we work or leaders in our family, we have to be leaders in our households. And there's a big difference between running your household and leading your household. Are we running our business or are we leading our business? Are you running your house or are you leading your house? The second thing we see in the standard of leadership is the model of Christian leadership is Christ. He's the perfect example of what a leader should look like. What did he do? Christ came to serve, not be served, right? We understand that it's the idea of service. When was the last time that we served? Not a job responsibility, but when was the last time that we truly served? When was the last time that you, on, on Sunday morning you parked off campus? Service. When was the last time that you went to the nursery and you see all those crying babies and you say, yeah, I'll push that bye-bye buggy. That'll be a lot of fun. Service. Or you see, you know, pouring into the next generation. It's not a responsibility. When was the last time that you served? Christ was the perfect example of service. Why, why did he come? He was born into a world that was too full of him, too full for him, in a manger that there was no room for him, lived a life that people hated him, went to a, a cross, bore every punishment you could imagine for no reason. All of his friends left him in his time of need. Why? So we could live. It's his sole purpose, to make our eyes, to make us right in the eyes of God. So he came to serve, not to be served. He also said, he told his followers that the greatest among them would be the what? The least. And the least would be the what? Greatest. When we realize as leaders that it's not about me, it's all about God. When we realize that, then we understand what it means to be a leader. A leader is a servant first, and out of being a servant, he leads second. Now that we have the standard of what a leader should look like, we can now transition to what the responsibility of leadership. So yes, we have to serve, but as leaders, we also have a responsibility. We gotta understand there's a difference. We have, we're leaders, we serve, but we also have responsibilities for those that we serve. So we find that in 1 Peter 5, verse two, but I'll read one and two together. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder in witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse two, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversights, 
not under compulsion, but voluntary according to the will of God. So, the responsibility of leadership. We are called by God to be what? Shepherds. We're called to be shepherds. Now, with being called to be shepherds, there are responsibilities of the shepherd. And we'll go through what those responsibilities are. The first responsibility of a shepherd is that he watches those under his care. So the shepherd watches those under his care. And that brings about the idea that it takes a time commitment. To watch those under our care takes a time commitment. Are we willing to put the time in to watch those under our care? The second thing that a shepherd has to do is that he cares for his flock. He cares for them. Are we willing to put the well-being of those under us over the well-being of ourselves? Are we willing to put the people that we are leading above our own? Or are we gonna put ourselves above those that we're leading? He cares for his flock. The next one is he feeds his sheep. So a shepherd feeds his sheep. And this requires a commitment of resources. Or another way of putting it, discipleship. It it requires discipleship. Are we willing to disciple those that we're leading? Are we willing to put in the time? Are we willing to take care of? Are we willing to disciple? The next one is that he protects his sheep. So a shepherd protects his sheep. And in that, we're fighting off evil and harmful threats from different predators And we're fighting them off so much so, again, the idea that we are putting those that we are leading above ourselves and above our own well-being. Are we willing to be leaders that put our people above us, our family above us, your employees above yourself, your kids, your spouse, you name it? Are you willing to put them above you for the protection of them? And the last one that a shepherd, what he does is a shepherd, he gathers his sheep. He gathers his sheep. And when the idea of he gathers his sheep, we have to understand in a biblical sense as a leader, we have to have a mindset for the lost world. We have to realize that there's a lost world completely around us that are just floating around doing nothing. As shepherds, as leaders, in our community, we have to understand that we have to reach that lost world. Are we willing to put the time in? Are we willing to put the sacrifice in? Are we willing to put the discipline in to reach the lost world around us? So we gotta also gotta understand with this being a shepherd is that we don't phase out of it. So I'm 30 years old. I'm just getting started in this battle. Some of y'all are 65, 70. You think you're at the tail end of the battle. Now's when we need you the most. We don't phase out of being leaders. The older generation, the younger generation is desperate for the older generation to pour into them. And the older generation needs to pour into the younger generation because they've been there. Like I said, I'm 30. As of we announced this past week that we're expecting our first child. So I'm looking to guys who have had three or four kids who are five, kids are five years old, kids who are in high school, kids who are in college, kids who have graduated. I'm looking for, what did you succeed in? What did you do? As shepherds, we're always pouring in to the flock. We're always pouring in to other leaders. So understanding that we don't phase out, we're never too old 
or too young to lead. See, when we realize as being leaders that God's entrusted us with the people that he's entrusted us with, that brings about a responsibility that's heavy. God's entrusted me with a spouse and with a child on the way. God's entrusted you with a family. He's entrusted you with a job. He's entrusted you with employees. Or if you're the low man on the totem pole, he's entrusted you to do the best that you can do. And that brings about a responsibility that we have to take heavy, that we have to understand that God's given us this gift. When we view it that way, the responsibility becomes real because it's not just my job, my employees, my family. It's, this is God's employees. This is God's family. This is God's kids. I've just been given the responsibility of taking care of them. So when we understand that, that responsibility becomes real. So now we have the standard of what a leader should be like or look like with the ultimate example being Christ. And within the standard, we have certain responsibilities that we know we have to do. Now we're gonna move to the motives of what a leader should look like or the motives of what a leader should do. And then we see that again in verse two and three. So I'll read verse two and verse three for us. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And do not... And not for sorbid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as, I missed my spot, I'm sorry. Nor yet as lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So we have to have the motives for leadership. And there's three motives here, and they're on the screen, but we'll talk about them individually. The first one is willingness. The willingness to be a leader, it has to be voluntary. It can't be something that we're forced to do. It's gotta be a voluntary willingness to serve. In the NIV, it says we have to be willing. The term willing translates to deeply passionate. So we have to be deeply passionate. And when you look at that in the passage, it says shepherds, It says, shepherds to the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but instead of voluntary, put in willingly. And then when we translate that, it says to deeply passionate. So we're supposed to deeply passionate what? According to the will of God. And the will of God, that translates to be like God. So when we're leading those around us, we have to be deeply passionate about it, like God. What is like God? Like God is patience loving, mercy, graceful, compassionate. We have to be leaders of mercy, of grace, of being compassionate, of being graceful. When we're doing that, we're being the proper leader God called us to be. The, second, the next thing is have the proper motives as a leader. How many times do I personally fail at this, it's all the time, that as a leader that I do things for selfish gain? That I'm gonna do, it's, I'm gonna, because I'm gonna do this as a leader, it's gonna make me better. I'm gonna get one step above somebody else. Do we see that in politics? You know, a little quick, quick pro quo. You help me, I help you. And then I'm gonna help myself even more. What about in the business world? You know, we, when we interview 
as, as pastors, when we interview deacons, new deacons, one of the big things we talk about is how are you in your professional life? Are you a guy Monday through Friday that nobody wants to be around because you're cutting every single deal you can make and then on Sunday morning you're passing the plate? It's a gut check to a lot of us. You know, how are we in our professional life? Are we all about ourselves? or are we all about making sure that we, as last week talked about, have the integrity that we need to have to be godly men? And the last one's in our marriages, if you're married. Um, do I do the dishes because I love my wife, or do I do the dishes because I know later in the night something else is gonna happen? Leave it at that. Proper motives, you know? People are smiling because they understand. Why are we doing things for our family? Are we doing them because we're truly putting our family first, or are we doing it because, hey, I'm gonna get something out of this later, whatever it is. We have to have the proper motives to be the proper leader God's called us to be. And the last one in there is not for power. Um, the passage where it talks about allotted to your charge could literally be translated to God has given it to you. So God's given us everything. He's put people in our lives that we can lead. We have to lead them in a godly manner because he's given them to us. We didn't get them, he gave them to us. It's all about God and everything is God's. So now that we have the standard for what a leader should look like, the responsibilities given within that standard, and then as well as the motives of that leader, we're gonna focus on the attitude of a leader. And we see that in verse four through six of First Peter five. And I'll read that real quick. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crowns of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So the attitude for leadership, the first one is we have to be submissive. We have to be submissive to the authority above us and the leadership above us. And that's easy if you have bosses. I have three or four bosses. It's easy for me to be submissive to my bosses because I know who my bosses are. But if you're at the top of the food chain and you are the boss, it's hard for you to be submissive because you're the boss. So what does that look like for you? To me, I see that in my life with people that here, especially here on this, at second, with Dr. Young. Dr. Young is the top. He's our senior pastor. But what does he do? He surrounds himself with 12 to 13 exec staff who when they walk into a room, they're on level ground. And they can say what they need to say and they lead our church that way. Dr. Young has the wisdom to do that. The church I came from in Tennessee, Dr. Adrian Rogers did the same thing. Pastor at Bellevue for 40 something years. Just like Dr. Young, he surrounded himself with people who would question in a godly way, hey, what are we doing? And would challenge him in a godly way, hey, what are we doing? But he understood that no one is never too big to fail. You can never be too big to fail. And when we realize that, then we realize that we need to put people in front of our, in, in, around us and surround us that will check us. Or even on this campus, 
Mark does the same thing. We have, there's a group that meets on Monday mornings and we talk about the things on our campus. Mark understands that though he's in charge of this campus, he surrounds himself with people who will question, who will ask the questions, who will talk the things out, and who will ultimately decide what we need to do. But he is able and understands that he needs to do that because we're never too big to fail. The next one is we need to be humble, or humble if you grew up in Texas, but I call it humble. Um, there's a quote that we found from Augustine, that which first overcame man is the last thing most men can ever overcome. Think about that for a second. That which first overcame man is the last thing most men can ever overcome. What was it? Pride. Pride. For me, I love to play golf. And as a golfer who I'm, depending on how often I get to play, which is not very much because I work too much, it's, it's challenging when I go into a sand trap and especially like a, a U.S. Open or British Open sand trap that the lip's like 30 feet high, and my ball is right on the lip. Because I'm a prideful person, I'm taking 80 hacks to get that ball out if I don't get it out. What, what should I do? I'm not playing for money. I'm not keeping score. Pick my ball up, throw it out. But because I have pride, because I'm going to get this ball out of the sand trap, I'm digging a hole to China. Pride. Little bitty thing of pride. But the same pride that brought Adam down is the same pride that brings us down. And it's one of the hardest things to overcome. So we have to remain humble. The phrase where it says, clothe yourself, that translates to putting on a garment, tying something on. And what it means is it's something that we have to do every single morning. Every morning I have to get up and say, today I'm gonna be humble. Today I'm gonna do what you need me to do, Lord. Today, I'm putting my pride aside and I'm gonna put your plan ahead of mine. Today, I'm gonna put what my wife needs ahead of what my need. Today, I'm gonna put my kids' needs ahead of my needs. Today, I'm gonna put the business first and my personal gains second. We have to remain humble. It also says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the merciful. The grace there signifies blessings not deserved. It's grace. We get grace every single morning. We get blessings we don't deserve. Are we willing to take those? Are we willing to be humble enough to say, God, whatever you're given, I'm taking. It might not be what I want, but you're giving it to me. I'm gonna take it. So we have to remain submissive. We have to remain humble and this last one under this attitude of leadership is a man never outgrows the need for mentorship. A man never outgrows the need for mentorship. As a young pastor, this is something that I desire. As a young married man, this is something that I need. As a young man in general, this is something that I want. The issue is, am I willing to go seek it out? And is there an older guy willing to pour into me? The same case goes for an older gentleman who's in his 60s and his 70s. He's looking to guys in their 80s and their 90s. Hey, how did you get to where you're at? 
Are we seeking that type of opportunity out? Am I going after guys that are in their 50s, in their 40s, in their 60s saying, hey, how did you get to where you're at? How did your kids, how did you raise your kids? You weren't perfect, but what did you do? Are we seeking after mentorship opportunities or are we being prideful saying, I got this, I'm good, my kids are great. I have a great job, I drive a great car, I don't need anybody to help me. Are we willing to ask others what they did and are others willing to pour into us in the same way? A man never outgrows the need for mentorship. So the past three weeks we've talked about what it takes to be an Iron Man, what it takes to be a godly man after Christ, but I wanted to take a little different turn here for the next few minutes and talk about for a second what happens if we do fail? Very first week, Mark talked about who? Talked about David. David was what? A man's after God's own heart. But how many times did David fail? Countless. Bathsheba, his sons. He wants to build the temple, and God says, you can't build a temple. You have too much blood on your hands. David failed time and time and time and time again, but yet God said what? You're a man after my own heart. So, what happens when we do fail? What happens when we've hit rock bottom? How do we get back up? Uh, my grandmother growing up, um, I grew up playing sports and I wasn't the brightest, I wasn't the sharpest toolbox in the shed, the brightest, whatever you wanna call it. And so she would give me these biblical trinkets growing up playing sports. And I can only take small doses because I wasn't very smart. And uh, so this one was my senior year of high school. I was trying to play college ball, so I needed all the film I could get. I had a concussion on Monday. I needed to play on Friday. But I wasn't able to practice because I had a concussion. I had, to, I had to lie to my mom to tell her I could play and all this stuff. But I'm sitting at her, at her kitchen table, and she says, Micah, have I told you the three tremendous T's? And I said, you have not, and I'm not really in the mood to hear it because um, I was a senior in high school and it was my grandmother. But she goes, I'm gonna tell you anyway. So she goes, she goes Psalm 23. And I was like, yeah, it's the shepherd's psalm. It's right, David wrote it. So David was a shepherd before he became king. And she goes, okay, I'm gonna read you the three tremendous T's, but for us, I'm gonna change it to the three T's for battle-tested leaders. So what happens when we do fall? Psalms 23, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So my grandmother's sitting there, and I'm reading this, and this is great, grandmother, I have no idea what this means. She goes, okay, the first T, though. Even though. It doesn't say maybe though. It doesn't say possibly though. It doesn't say perhaps though. It doesn't say let's wait and see though. It says even though. Difficult times are gonna happen. Difficult times are gonna hit us. We know that. If you don't know that, it's gonna happen. Difficult times are coming. You might be in one right now, you might have just come out of one, or you might be going through one with a friend, but difficult times are gonna happen. As leaders, as biblical leaders, tough times do not leave us alone. We're gonna be questioned with moral integrity at our jobs. You're gonna have moral issues you're gonna have to deal with. Do I do this job or do I do that job? Difficult times are gonna happen. The question is, 
what are we going to do? So at this point, I'm like, great, great, grandma, Ma, this is fantastic. I'm in this difficult time. I get this. What next? The next T, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. See, it doesn't say even though I wallow. It doesn't say even though I build a house. It doesn't say even though I make a tent. It doesn't say even though I hang out here and chill with all my friends. What does it say? I walk what? Through. Through is a promise. Walking through is a command. Walking through means that we're in this valley. We're not staying in this valley. This valley could be so high that we don't see what's going on as leaders. We could have a moral failure and we are truly remorseful. We are truly asking God for forgiveness. But we're getting through this valley. For me, a valley took 10 years. I graduated high school in 2005. I graduated college a year and a half ago. Took me almost 10 years to the day to graduate college. I hated school, despised school. But that was my valley. I was in it for 10 years and there were points where I could not see the skyline, but I kept walking. My wife graduated in a year and a half. So that's a gut check. Took me 10 years, took her a year and a half. But it's the idea that I'm in this valley but I keep walking, I keep going through. You're at a job, you've struggled. You're in that valley, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. Why are we able to do that? How do we have the confidence to do so? So at this point, I'm with my grandmother, I'm like, okay, I'm getting this, figuring this out, getting a little excited. And she says, I have to go get my King James Bible. I was like, oh, good gracious, why? Because the third T is not in the NIV or the ESV or the NSB, it is Thou, for thou art with me, or as my translation says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. So that's how we have confidence. We know that difficult times are coming, because it tells us. We also know that when we're in that valley, we're not alone. When we're in that valley, we're not staying there. We might be army crawling out, but we're getting out of it. Why? Because God's with us every single step of the way. He's sitting there saying, come on, we're gonna make it. We're gonna do this. We're getting out of this. You just gotta take my hand and roll because he's there. The valley could be so high that you can't even see skylight. You can't even see your hand in front of your face, but God's there with you. He's walking with you through it. But God is so great and so good that he doesn't leave us by ourselves. He doesn't even leave us just with him. He provides us with some things. And we see that in the last part of verse four. I will fear no evil for you are with me. What? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now rod and a staff today for me is not comforting at all. I am not a shepherd. What was David? He was a shepherd. So a rod and a staff, those are big tools for him. What do you use a rod for? What did David use a rod for? Protection. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. He used that rod to protect his what? His sheep, his livelihood. What's our rod? Guys in this room. Godly men that you can pour into and can pour into you. Your Bible study class, mentors, godly friends, that's our rod. Guys that are willing to call us out for protection purposes. 
That's our rod. The staff, what, what, what was a staff used for a shepherd? It's a tool of guidance. Sheep would get out astray, what did the shepherd do? Grab that staff, look like a candy cane, kind of put it back in, back to the fold. Or if a sheep wanders off, falls down into a hole, picks his staff on the, the, the J side, puts it down, picks it up, pulls that sheep out. That's what a staff was used for. What's our staff? Holy Spirit guiding us, directing us. The scriptures guiding us, directing us. Other mentors are pouring into us, helping us guide this walk, walk this life, do this life together. That's our rod and that's our staff. God never leaves us alone. He gets us through it. So I, again, as I said, am a man that is a simple man and I enjoy illustrations and that's how I learn things. So I apologize why I grabbed this microphone stand and we're gonna have a little object illustration to kind of talk this thing out. So we're gonna use Spike here as an example, if you don't mind, sir. So we find Spike. Spike is down in a hole and I toss Spike a rope and I say, Spike, climb out. So he grabs a hold of the rope and he starts to climb out. But I take the rope back and instead, we talked to Spike. Spike, how long have you been married? 45 years. Spike's been married 45 years. I guarantee you there's been a couple fights in those 45 years, right? 45 years of fighting. But good, good, good fights. Gets through them. Well, good, 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 good. Back in your younger days. But that fight you had 45 years ago, or maybe you had one of those sons of yours did something when they were a kid and you just couldn't get over it and you had to deal with that. Or as a coach, you had a tough loss and it questioned you know, your job. Am I gonna keep my job? Am I gonna do this, am I gonna do that? Or you try, go try to play college ball and you get hurt, right? Get hurt, that puts another knot in your rope. Or you're dealing now with grandkids and those grandkids get on your nerves. Add another rope. Add another rope. Add a knot to the rope. Or maybe now that you've been married 45 years, you're trying to figure out what to do with the next 30 years of your life. Add another knot to the rope. So now I take this rope and I toss it to Spike. He's down in the hole and I say climb out. Which rope's easier? The one without the knots, the one with the knots. Why? Grab a hold of them. That's our life. When we're in those valleys, when we're down in those peaks, when we're just in despair, we're looking to Christ. Because we know that next year I'm out of this. For me, 10 years later, I'm out of this. Now I'm working with college kids, and I hated college. But I'm able to pour into them and say, hey, get your degree, finish. I'm able to say, hey, my wife and I dated three and a half years long distance and absolutely hated every single minute of it. But because we dated long distance, we have to talk things out. So our communication skills are good. But that was a knot in our rope. What's your knots? What are you doing? What have you done in your life that you can pour into other people that you can say, hey, I was there. But you know what? I grabbed a hold of it and I got out. Only because God got me out of it only because I look to him, only because I realize that no matter how deep I am in the valley, no matter how desperate it is, 
I'm walking through it. I'm getting out of it. So we look at the life of David. We realize that he did all these things. We realize that he did imaginable sins that I wouldn't even dare to think that I could even do, but who knows? But why did, what did God say at the end of his life? What did they say about him? He's a man after God's own heart. Oh, to be a man after God's own heart. In conclusion, when are you successful? You're successful when God says so. So the world doesn't dictate how successful you are. The world doesn't dictate what kind of leader you are. What dictates that? You and God. That's the only definition of success that I need. That's the only definition of success that you need is am I doing right in the eyes of God? Am I being the leader God has called me to be? Am I leading my family, my business, whoever, the way God has called me to lead? Let me pray for you. Uh, and again, y'all can keep talking all you want just until security kicks you out. Um, so we'll pray. God, I love you. Thank you for the day. God, we're called to be light in the darkness. We're called to be shining cities on a hill. And there's no better place for us to do that than where you have us at our current situation. God, I pray tonight that you embolden us to be the leaders that you have called us to be, that you empower us to lead by example, that you empower us to lead by serving others, that you allow us to put our selfish pride aside and lift your name and lift your will and lift your plans for us ahead of the things that we have God, when we do that, we know that we are walking with you, that when difficult times happen, that we are going through them because you are with us and you're gonna see us through the other side. And when we get to the other side, we can look back and say that it was only by your grace that I got through it. God, be with these men tonight, bless them, put people in front of their lives that they can be a blessing to this week. Lord, we love you. Holy, precious name, amen.